Well, good evening, brothers and sisters. Um, I hope the evening finds you well. Um, this is this is an introduction to the revelation of Jesus Christ, uh, a series that we are going to undertake, also known as, uh, we titled it, or I should say Kirk came up with the title, When the Man Comes Around. So uh, with that, uh, this is just an introduction to uh, whet your appetite and to give you some perspective. Um, let me just start off by saying that when I was in school, um, we used to have, sometimes we would have these open book tests. Maybe you've had those as well. And with open book tests, you can always look in the back of the book and you can find the answers that you need uh, when filling out uh, the test. And in a sense, that's what the book of Revelation is. The answer is in the back of the book. And the synopsis is, is that Jesus Christ wins and we win with him. And so that's a glorious thing. The answers are indeed in the back of the book. Jesus wins the conflict between good and evil. He slays the dragon and he sets up his kingdom on earth. Now, this book that we're about to undertake in the coming weeks is not without controversy. There are many, many people who have undertaken to understand and interpret this book. But before we get into the differences, let's first start with what we, uh, as the elders of Hill City Church, agree on and why we're undertaking the study of this incredible book. Personally, uh, this is my favorite book in the Bible. I absolutely love it. Uh, I read it about once a month, uh, all the way through chapters 1 through 22. And I always get fresh insights from the Holy Spirit in it. And it is such a blessing. So what? what uh, why would we as elders who have different perspectives uh, on this book and and eschatology, which is just a fancy word of that means study of the end times. Why would we undertake a study like this and take you, uh, our congregation, through that? Um, well, there's many reasons, but let me let me start off with what we agree on. First of all, we all agree that Jesus is coming back, and He's coming back a second time in a second advent, and He's going to establish His kingdom on earth. We all agree that. Paradise that was lost in Genesis, Jesus will restore it uh, in the book of Revelation. All of us agree that sin and death, our last enemy, will be defeated by Christ in the end. All of us agree that there will be a new heaven and a new earth. All of us agree that Satan and his fallen angels will be put down and will never again allow be allowed to deceive humanity, ever. All of us agree that the issues we're about to undertake through this book are secondary issues in the church. That is, we debate over them, but we don't divide over them because it is a secondary issue. It is an in-house debate. We discuss them, but we remain unified. And that is something that the church in our culture uh, has done a very poor job. We think it's important as elders to maintain 
unity even amongst diversity. Now, all of us agree that the gospel of Jesus Christ is of first importance. And you can see 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 3 on that. The gospel is of first importance and that everything we say and teach through revelation is done to honor Jesus, his gospel, and to, and to encourage you, the people of God, and to frame everything in light of who Christ is and what he has done for us. This is not a competition for us to get you to be persuaded to come to our side. But prophecy is important. The reason prophecy is important is because for every one prophecy of Christ's first coming, there are eight of his second. It is important to God and therefore should be important to us. We also agree that each of the positions we hold can be challenged. That each of us don't have it completely right. Uh, and that uh, we believe that each of us, when we stand before the throne of God someday, we, <laughs> we will see where we were wrong. Not every one of us has it right. Uh, each one of our views on the book of Revelation and eschatology, eschatology in general are merely imp implicit. Uh, we also agree uh, that, again, I, I think I, I can't state this enough, but we agree that it's important to God. And so that if one-third of the Bible is prophecy, it should be important to us as well. So that's what we agree on. And that's kind of the basis where we want to start. Now, there are many misconceptions about the book of Revelation and other apocalyptic scriptures like Daniel, Zechariah, uh, sections of Jeremiah, the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, Luke 21, Luke 17, and on and on it goes. There are many misconceptions about the book of Revelation that we want to address as well. The, the first misconception is that this is a scary book and we should just be, it should just be avoided altogether. But this is the word of God. God uh, wrote this for our learning and for our relationship to him. In fact, the reason why we're taking on this book is because it is the only book in the Bible that has the audacity, if I could use that word, to say, read me, I'm special. It promises a blessing to those who hear, to those who keep what is written in it, because the time is near. Why would the Holy Spirit put a promise of a blessing of reading and hearing and understanding and obeying the book? Why would he put a blessing in that if he didn't want us to read it? But the truth is, we're always afraid of what we don't understand. And therefore, we want to shed light to give understanding about this amazing vision that John the Revelator is seeing. Number two misconception, that this book is hard to understand. The book is written in symbols and, 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 uh, and types, uh, but those symbols have a meaning behind them. And how you interpret that is how you will discover what the book means. Again, there's methods of interpretation and we'll get into that 
here in a minute. But this is what we want to unfold to you. We want to describe these to you. The third misconception is that the book should be avoided altogether. But again, as previously stated, this is the word of God and it is precious to God. So we don't avoid something just because we don't understand it or are afraid of it. So there are some things to keep in mind when we study this book in the coming weeks. Fred will open us up on Sunday, Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. First of all, the book, the, the, the actual title of the book, Revelation, in fact, Revelation 1.1 says, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. The word revelation in the Greek is the word apocalypsis. It's where we get our English word for apocalypse. The very word means, not what we think it means in terms of the movies that we see and out there, but the, the very word mean the, the word means an unveiling. Think of a, a painting or a, or a piece of art or a sculpture uh, at an art show. Typically, that painting will have a, a cover over it or a drape or something, a blanket or something over it to conceal it. And then when it's time, the artist unveils it and reveals it to the people. The revelation of Jesus Christ is the revealing of Jesus himself. Now, when we get into this book... We'll talk about the tribulation, the Antichrist, the temple, the whore of Babylon, the 144,000 Jews, and on and on it goes, the new heavens and the new earth. And we'll talk about all of those things. But if we miss Jesus in the midst of this book, because it's all about him, then we've missed the entire point of the book of Revelation. This is about him. This is totally and completely about him. So, with that, the book of Revelation is about restoring paradise that was lost. It is the final episode in God's plan of redemption that you could divide up the Bible in four parts. You have creation, where God created everything and saw that it was good. Then you have the fall, when our First parents, Adam and Eve, they sinned and, and we uh, inherited their genetic defect of sin where mankind fell. Then we have redemption where Christ came in his first advent and he went to the cross on our behalf. He, he became our substitute. He bore our sins in his body on the tree, as it says in, in uh, Romans 8 that we might be redeemed, that the penalty of sin, that we are justified, that God declares us sinners to be justified on the basis of faith and not on the basis of our merit or our works, that he declares us righteous uh, before God, that our position in Christ is secure. Then you have what we call God is currently freeing us from the power of sin, as we grow in our relationship with Jesus, we, um, we are sanctified, which is a fancy word meaning we, we are more and more conformed to the image of Christ. Sin, you know, little by little, little bit by bit, has less and less power. But now we get to the book of Revelation, and what we're seeing here is the glorification, that is, 
God removes us in Christ from the presence of sin. Sin will be a thing of the past, and we won't have to think about not sinning when we enter the new heavens and the new earth because we will be completely... uh, uh, We're headed for an upgrade. Uh, You are headed for 2.0, if you will, if I could use that word. So now, in, in the eschaton, there's basically four views that men have set up, if you will, that have come along, and I'm here to describe them to you. Now again, I'm, I'm somebody who's biased, uh, and Kirk and Fred and Buzzy are biased, but I'm going to try to describe this in a, in, in a very fair way. So the four views have to do with the millennium in Revelation chapter 20. The millennium is described as the thousand-year reign of Christ. And I'll just, I'll read it to you. Um, Revelation chapter 20, verse 1, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a while. Then I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded beheaded for their witness to Jesus and the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their foreheads, or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So there it is right there. That's, uh, that passage is uh, controversial, seen in many different lights. Uh, But millennium just merely means a thousand. And there's basically four views on that. The first view I want to touch on is the one that... was the most popular, but is gaining the least popularity. And that's something called post-millennialism. Post-millennialists believe that the millennium is an era, not a literal thousand years, during which Christ will reign over the earth. Not from a literal and an earthly throne, but from from the gradual increase of the gospel and its power to change lives. This is uh, basically the gradualization of Christianization of the world. Jesus will return and immediately usher the church into the eternal state, judging the wicked. Now, postmillennialists view it this way, that the world is getting better. The world will eventually get better, meaning uh, all facets of society will become more and more Christianized. Uh, every facet of government, schools, arts, work, sports. I mean, it will. the gospel will saturate every part. It will get better. And eventually the post-millennialists see that the millennial kingdom will come after the entire world has been Christianized. That when the entire world has come to faith in Jesus Christ, that is when Jesus will come back. That is the post-mill view. 
this holy rain will come about a gradual conversion through the spread of the gospel. It's basically an incremental process that's drawn from the many pictures found throughout Scripture. So, the post-millennial view nurtured a lot of popularity in the early days because of the advent of technology. We saw advances in medicine, advances in technology, advances in those types of things, advances in education. Uh, although it post-millennialism began to take a dip when the First and Second World Wars hit and people saw that the world wasn't getting better, it was getting worse. So it seems to be the view that, um, and again, I'm speaking in generalities. There's many people with different opinions. But it seems to be dropping in popularity. The second uh, view that I want to touch on is called Ah Millennialism. Ah Mills, this view is the most popular within denominational churches. Your Lutherans, your Presbyterians, your Reformed Baptists, those types of your Church of the Brethren, uh, those types of things. The Ah Mill view believes that the kingdom of God was inaugurated at Christ's resurrection. So they take the millennium in Revelation 20 and they see it as symbolic. So Christ's kingdom was inaugurated at Christ's resurrection, at which point he gained victory over both Satan and the curse. That even now Christ is ruling and reigning in heaven with his saints that are in heaven at the right hand of of the Father over his church. Now after this present age is ended, Christ will immediately usher the church into their eternal state after judging the wicked. The term ah millennialism is actually a misnomer for it implies uh, the word A is sort of a negation. It means no millennium. It's, it's the age between the first and the second coming of Christ. Their methods of interpretation of interpreting the scripture are redemptive and historical. There's really no distinction between Israel and the church in the Amil view. That the church in the Amil view, is the, uh, is, is the eschatological fulfillment of Israel. I'm trying not to use too many big words. But if you have any questions, feel free to come up and ask any one of us. The kingdom of God is a spiritual present reality that all Christians partake in and that is seen presently by faith. So they see that Jesus ushered in his kingdom through his church and that we are ruling and reigning with Christ on the earth, that we are in the current millennium. The Amil view of the rapture of the church, the saints, the living and the dead, they'll meet the Lord in the clouds immediately uh, to proceed. They will be changed into new bodies. Christians will be changed into new bodies and come right back down with Christ to follow him into the eternal state. So, that kind of gives you a snapshot. Um, It is, again, it's initiated at Christ's resurrection, so being applicable from the early days of the Christian church. 
The Amil perspective sees the whole of God's redemptive revelation as twofold, promise and fulfillment. This is where uh, Kirk and Buzzy are sympathetic in that, in that particular view. Um, an important note is that Amil's view the church in the world as as a role of suffering, the Christian will be hated by all, just as Christ was, that we will see tribulation on the earth, and that uh, that no hope for an early exaltation longs for the fulfillment of the second stage of the coming of the kingdom. So from the Amil perspective, the final consummation of all things that Jesus does is based on the promises that he has given. So that's kind of a brief synopsis of uh, millennialism. The third view I want to touch on is called historic premillennialism. Now, historic premillennialists, they place the return of Christ just before the millennium and just after the time of the great apostasy of the church and the great tribulation after the thousand year reign of Christ. So after the after the thousand year reign of Christ, historical pre mills believe that Satan will be loosed one last time, and that Gog and Magog, which are references to Ezekiel thirty eight, again, I realize this is a lot of information, but as we go through, you'll see he'll, that Satan will rise one last time at the end of the thousand year reign of Christ, and this will be immediately followed by the final judgment. While similar in some respects to what's called the dis- dispensational variety, historic pre-mill differs in significant ways. They favor more of a historical favored method of interpretation of the book of Revelation. In terms of Israel and the church, they see the church like the Amil see the church, that it is the fulfillment of, of the promises of God in the Old Testament. That the they also believe that present through the Spirit since Pentecost to be experienced by sight during the millennial reign after Christ's return. They see the rapture similar as Amils do. That when Christ comes in the clouds, they go to meet him immediately in the clouds. They are translated as 1 Corinthians 15, 52 talks about, and they come immediately back down with Christ to rule and to reign with him. So the historical pre-mill view interprets prophecy in scripture as having a literal fulfillment. There's others that demand a semi-symbolic fulfillment, but as case in point, the sealed judgments which are viewed as having a fulfillment in the forces of history rather than in future powers by which God works out his redemptive and judicial purposes leading up to the end. So rather than believing in the imminent return of Christ, it is held that a number of historical events like the rise of the beast and the false prophet, it must take place before Christ's second coming is how the historical pre-mills see it. And the last view I want to touch on is dispensational premillennialist. This is this is the view that I hold to. Dispensational premill hold that Christ will come before a seven-year period of intense tribulation to take his church. 
that God will deliver the church before the great tribulation. The living and the dead into heaven, meaning the dead in Christ and the living in Christ, as Paul alludes to in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. After this period of fulfillment of divine wrath, meaning after the judgments that lays out in Revelation 6 to 19, Jesus is going to return with his church from a holy city over the earthly nations for 1,000 years. The, the dispensational pre-mill believe in a literal thousand-year reign of Christ. And after these thousand years, Satan, who is bound up during Christ's earthly reign, will be loosed to deceive the nations one last time. He'll gather an army of the deceived. He'll take up battle against the Lord. And the Lord will put him down one last time forever and throw him into the lake of fire. They believe in a pre-millennial view of Christ. Typically, the favored method of interpretation for pre-mills is a strict, literal interpretation. Meaning that even though Revelation was written in symbols and visions, that those symbols and visions have literal meanings behind them. An example of this would be the woman described in Revelation chapter 12. She has the sun, the moon, and the 12 stars over her head. 12 or 11, I can't remember. I'll have to go back and look. But 11 stars over her head. And she's giving birth to a male child. This is a vision that John is seeing. That clearly corresponds with Joseph's dream back in Genesis. And so... Many people interpret the woman as the nation of Israel. But again, interpretations vary. So that's just one example of that. Israel and the church. um, Pre-mill dispensationalists see the Israel and the church as two separate entities. Now don't mistake that. It doesn't mean that just because somebody is Jewish by pedigree means they're saved. That's not what it means at all. But what it does mean is that the church in Israel are both saved by grace through faith, through the finished work of the cross, but how we get there is two different ways. And that can be explained through various prophecies in the Old Testament and the New as two distinct entities with two individual redemptive plans. Again, pre-mill dispensationalists see the rapture of the church before the seven-year tribulation period. And there's many reasons for that. And then the millennium, that the, the millennium is literal and that Jesus will return at the end of the great tribulation. He will lock up Satan. He will begin to rule and reign with, with his saints for a thousand years. And it's after that thousand year period that Satan will be released, which we have just described. Um, so the millennium will see the reestablishment of the temple worship, uh, and sacrifices, remembrance of Christ's sacrifice. You can look to Ezekiel chapter 40 for that, as well as other places. But again, I'm not here to get into specifics. There's tons of scripture that we could go through and, um, 
and we won't just get into that. We'll, we'll get into it as the weeks go along. Um, so again, a, a strictly literal hermeneutic is found in the dispensational premillennialist view. And so that's kind of it. Um, those four views are sort of the predominant views. There's another view called the preterist view, which I won't get into too much. Just means that preterism sees that the Great Tribulation happened in 70 AD when the Roman general Titus came and sacked Jerusalem and all of that. So in closing, uh, the book of Revelation, you can sort of divide up this way. In fact, the Holy Spirit, under his inspiration, gives you an outline in chapter 1, verse 19. And you can sort of read it this way, and I'll read it to you. He commands John, the apostle, write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. After this is the Greek word metatauta, and that word is mentioned a few times. So the way you can divide up the, the book of Revelation is through that lens. So he Jesus instructs John, write the things that you have seen. What does he mean by that? He Well, verses 1 through 18 John has seen the resurrected, glorified Jesus Christ. Can you imagine? Think about that for a minute. John walked with Jesus while Jesus was behind a veil of flesh. And now John is seeing Jesus in all of his glory. That must have been a sight to behold. In fact, in verse 17 there, it says that he fell down at his feet dead. So John wrote this. Uh, church history tells us that Domitian was in power. And John was, he was an older man, probably in his 80s. And Domitian tried to boil John in oil. He was the last living apostle. But the Lord spared him. So Domitian ended up banishing him to a little island between Greece and Turkey called Patmos. Now, if you Google Patmos today, it's a resort town, beautiful island, but that's where he was left to die. And this is where Jesus gave him these visions. So write the things you have seen, which is the glorified, resurrected Christ. Jesus then says, write the things that are. And the things that are are the things of the church, which Jesus pens himself seven epistles to seven different churches that John is writing to in this in his day. Those epistles have um, an admonition, an encouragement, uh, um, a correction, and a promise at the end of them in, in its general structure. And so you have seven letters to seven churches. So it's the church on earth. Chapters four and five, I like to call it the church in heaven. This is the throne room of God. The church, the 24 elders are gathered around the throne of God, along with the multitudes, and they are behold, they are, they are behold, they are beholden to the throne of God. So chapters one is the glorified resurrected Jesus Christ. Chapters two and three is the church on earth. Chapters four and five is the church in heaven. Chapters six through 19 are the, is the great tribulation, is the judgment chapters. It's built on what's called a heptatic structure. That is, there are seven, you'll, you'll see the number seven a lot 
in the book of Revelation. It's the number in scripture which indicates completion. The hepstatic structure is you have seven sealed judgments. Jesus Christ himself opens those seals. And contained within the seventh seal, you have seven trumpet judgments. And then contained within the seven trump, seventh trumpet judgments, you have seven bowl judgments. Then you have, in between, you have all of the judgments which Christ pours out on a Christ-rejecting, sinful world. Then at the end, you have Revelation 19, which is the second coming. Jesus Christ is on his horse. He has a name on his thigh, and he comes down to rule and reign. He rode into Jerusalem on a donkey as a humble man, but this time he's going to ride back down here as a warrior to take over. Of course, chapter 20 is the great white throne judgment. This is the judgment uh, of non-believers because it's the dead standing before Christ to be judged. The believer's judgment is when we die and go stand before the Lord, but our judgment is not for salvation, it's for rewards. It's called the Bema Seat. But the great white throne judgment is described in Revelation 20 where the dead will be judged according to their works. They'll be judged according to their own righteousness, which obviously no one has a prayer of being in God's presence based on their own merit. It's only on the merit of Christ. Uh, Chapters 21 and 22 is when all things are made new. We see a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, which God prepared for his bride. This city is massive. It's 1,500 miles long, 1,500 miles wide, and 1,500 miles high with pearl gates, gold streets. In other words, John is trying to describe something in heaven that he is unable to describe. He's doing the best he can, but he just can't do it. This is the new Jerusalem. This is the city where we will all fellowship together someday in heaven. And then chapters twenty, chapter 22, we see the river of life uh, along with the tree of life. Now, it's interesting. You can contrast the book of Revelation along with the book of Genesis. The difference is in, in uh, the book of Revelation, chapter 22, there is no tree of the knowledge of good and evil because Christ has chosen us. He has elected, sovereignly elected us to his kingdom, so there's no more need for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then there is a a, a strong charge by Jesus in verse 7. He says, Behold, I'm coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. The word quickly there is the word takos in the Greek, which simply, where we get our English word for tachometer, means that when it happens, it will happen quick. Jesus testifies to the churches in verses 12 through 17. Then there's a warning. And then the very last words of the book, he who testifies to these things, surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Let me close with this. The reason why Bible prophecy is important is because it has a purifying effect on our lives. 
It has a purifying effect on our lives. Listen to what the Apostle John says. In 1 John 3, 2 and 3, he says, Beloved, we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, that is his second coming, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. In Matthew 24, Jesus told us to watch, to be on the lookout. He told the Pharisees, you know how to discern the weather, but you don't know how to discern the signs of the times. Well, he has given us this beautiful book, nothing to be afraid of, but everything to hope for. And boy, this is going to be a fun study. So I hope you enjoyed the introduction. Please pray for Fred on Sunday that the Holy Spirit would fill him. And if you have any questions, feel free to ask any of us. God bless you. Uh, God, God bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In Jesus' name, amen.